want you to picture with me uh, three scenes this morning. I want us to use a, a little bit of our sanctified imaginations this morning. And I want you to picture three people in, in difficult situations. So three scenes, okay? And the first scene that I want you to picture, uh, the first individual I want you to picture in a difficult situation, uh, the first scene takes place on the bank of the Euphrates River near the ancient city of Babylon in the year of 570 B.C. And there, upon the banks of that massive river, running through that city that is at the heart of the empire that rules the world at that time, uh, Babylon, uh, there I want you on the banks of that river to picture a young man. And this young man, he's around 15, 16 years of age, and he has olive skin and dark hair, and he has tears in his eyes, trying to hold him back. He's a discouraged young man. And as he stands on the banks of that river, he is surrounded by women who are weeping. This young man's mother is there, as are his aunts, along with several women from his community. They are kneeling, and they are praying, and they are crying. They are in mourning. And this young man, he knows why they are mourning. He understands why they are mourning. But he's too angry to join them. You see, these women are Hebrew women, and this young man is a Hebrew young man, but these Hebrews are not in Babylon by choice. They are there by subjugation. They're there in bondage. Their homeland, Judah, has been conquered, and its capital city of Jerusalem, where the temple was, it has been destroyed. It's been razed to the ground. Nothing's left. So everything that their family ever owned, everything that they ever held dear, it's all gone. All gone. The only life that they and their people had ever known has been taken away from them by force. And that's why these women are weeping. That's why they're weeping. They're, they're crying out to their God. They are, they are crying out to Yahweh, the true and living God, and they're pleading with him to hear, to hear them, to answer them, to deliver But this young man with olive skin and tears in his eyes, he's not joining in their prayers. He's not joining in their prayers. And he's not joining in their prayers because he understands why all of this has happened. Although he's young, he's read the prophets, he's had them read to him. And he knows the law. And he knows what was promised, what was warned, and how for generations the people broke God's law. They ignored God's warning. And they took God's blessings for granted. He knows that all of this has happened, this exile in Babylon, as a judgment upon them for their sin. And that's why he's angry. That's why he's discouraged. That's why there are salty tears stinging his eyes. As he listens to the prayers of these women there on the banks of the Euphrates, he says to himself, we have sinned. We, we, have, we have sinned, and our sin has ruined our lives. Why pray? What hope do we have? What hope do we have? Now I want you to picture another scene. And, and this scene, the second scene, it takes place long before that scene on the banks of the Euphrates. And in this scene, I want you to picture another woman who is weeping. 
And she too is weeping because she's lost her home, she's lost her place, she's lost her everything. And this woman that I want you to picture, she is beautiful. She has such sad eyes. And she's wearing some strange clothing. You see, this woman is wearing animal skins, freshly killed animal skins. And the stink of death is on her. She's actually weeping because of death. She's weeping because of her death. She's weeping because of the sentence of death that is upon her now that she has been exiled east of the Garden of Eden. See, I want you in the second scene to picture Eve, the first woman. And I want you to picture her not long after that sad, tragic, world-transforming event that took place there in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to picture her. There she is. She's, she's covered in animal skin. She's exiled from paradise. And she is weeping over the reality of it all. Here's the thing. We have all, to varying degrees, known that feeling of failure, right? And not just, not just letting yourself down, but feeling like you have failed other people. We've all, to varying degrees, known that. But can you possibly imagine her feeling of failure? I mean, think about it. She had known paradise, right? She had walked, actually walked with God. She had lived in the world where everything was, was as it should be. Everything was perfect. But then what did she think? She thought she could make it better. She thought that by, by going her own way, she could improve her life. And so she rested in her wisdom and she reached for something greater. And the foolishness of her, own, of her actions were only matched by the severity of her fall. The severity of our fall. Some people think um, Eve is a fictional character. It's not. She, she really existed. So think about her. Think, I mean, put yourself in that situation. I wonder how many times she thought to herself, my. I've ruined it. It's ruined. I mean, yes, there would be children, but then she'd watch one son murder another. And she'd also watch her husband day in and day out, broken by the labor in which she used to delight. And she'd know frustration with him and anger with him and bitterness towards him where once they had only known delight and relational intimacy and harmony. And she understood. She understood why it had all changed. She knew the reason now for the pain, for the sorrow, the reason for her weeping. It was because of sin. Her sin. Their and as, as you picture her weeping east of Eden, I want you to imagine her. I want you to hear her say, my sin, our sin, has ruined our lives. Has ruined our lives. What hope can I have? What hope can we have? What hope can we have? I want you to picture a third scene. And this scene, I want you to picture a home in, uh, 
any town USA. And what I mean by that is imagine a modern home in modern America in any way that your imagination sketches that out. And in this home, I want you to picture a man sitting at his kitchen table. And this man is an older man, and he has thinning silver hair and deep lines, wrinkles in his face. And running through those deep lines in his face are tears. He, too, is weeping. And the reason for his weeping is crumpled up in his hands. You see, this older man sitting at his kitchen table in his house in any town USA, he's just received a letter, a letter from his son. And it's the type of letter that no one would ever want to receive. It's a letter filled with anger, with bitterness, with hate. In this letter, his son details his struggles with his own marriage. His wife is threatening divorce and struggles with his children, his oldest daughters in rehab. The son, just, he just details struggles with life itself. And the son writes to his father and he says, I don't know how to go on. I don't know how to go on. And I blame I blame you. Well, as the old man reads and rereads those words, he knows that they're deserved. He knows that they're deserved. He knows he's been a failure. He's been a failure to his son. He's been a failure to his whole family. He's treated them. He's treated his marriage, his children, even his grandchildren. Like they're all just there for him, for him to use and abuse and then just toss away. So as he sits at that table with that crumpled letter in his hands and tears streaming down his face, he says to himself, my, my failure, my sins have ruined our lives. Why? Why have I done this? What hope is there for me? What hope do I have? What hope do we have? What hope is there for us? What hope is there? What hope is there? What hope is there for us? That's an important question. That is a crucially important question. Hope. Hope in the face of discouragement and despair. Hope in the face of sin and its consequences. Can we find hope? When our sin has ruined our lives, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Such an important question. Such an important question. And this morning, we're going to answer that question. We're going to answer that question. You see, this morning, we've come to, to the moment, the moment in our current summer series when we get to talk all about hope. This morning, we're going to talk all about hope. This series that we began a few weeks ago, walking through the series this summer, the series which we're titling the gospel, the good news at the heart of our faith. And we started this a few weeks ago. And in this series, we're diving into the riches of the gospel. And what we're doing is we're examining the, the jewels, the, the gems of truth that make up the riches of the gospel, that make up the riches of this treasure at the heart of our faith, this treasure at the center of a life of Christian, this, this glorious message of our salvation. And thus far, as we've been working through this series, we've talked about the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel. And I explained that in order to understand the gospel properly, this, this message is at, is at the heart of our faith. In order to understand it properly, we need to start 
our understanding of the gospel, where the Bible starts. And the Bible starts with God. The Bible starts not with us, but the Bible starts with God. When the Bible tells the gospel story, it starts with God. But it doesn't start by telling us that God is love, or even by pointing us to his mercy and his grace. Now, all of those things do eventually come out in the gospel story, and they are important in the story. But the Bible begins way back in the opening chapter, first chapter of the book, the opening chapter of Genesis. The Bible begins by telling us what? By telling us that God is our creator. That's why we're here. He made us. He's our creator. It tells us that God is our creator and that he is sovereign over all things. He made all things and he's in charge of all things. And it tells us that our sovereign creator, God, is holy. That's how it starts the story. Our sovereign creator, God, is holy. The story begins by showing us that everything that he does is good. Everything that he makes is what? He saw that it was good. Everything that he makes is good. It's all an expression of his holiness. And then to further reveal his holiness, in chapter 2 of Genesis, God gives mankind what? He gives them law. He gives mankind law. He gave one rule in the garden to our first parents. And they were to obey that rule. It wasn't a divine suggestion. It was a command. And they were to obey that command. And they were to obey it in a way so it would, it would acknowledge God's sovereignty over their lives. They were to obey it in order to acknowledge God's good and holy and right authority over their lives. They were to obey, acknowledging that they understood who was the sovereign God. But we know the story, what happened. Did they obey? They rebelled. And that's what we talked about last Sunday. Last Sunday we talked about the problem of the gospel. Last Sunday we looked at at the dilemma that is at the heart of the gospel. And here's the thing. The dilemma is not simply that we've made some mistakes or that we have some negative thinking we need to get rid of or that we've we've just missed the mark. We've worked close, but we just missed the mark of God's standard for our lives. No, that's not the dilemma. That's not the problem. The problem is that we as a human race have rebelled. We have rebelled against our sovereign, holy creator, God. We rebelled in our first parents as they spurned God's one rule and ate from the forbidden tree, spurning his sovereignty over their lives. We rebelled in our first parents and we've been rebelling ever since. Ever since. Each one of us turning from God's good ways. Each one of us challenging his authority. Each one of us rejecting our sovereign creator. No thanks, I will go my own way. We rebelled. Here's the thing. We talked about this last week. Our rebellion has brought what? Consequences. He's a holy God. There are consequences for sin. Last week we looked at the fact that we are now a fallen, sinful people under judgment consequences for our rebellion we're under judgment and sometimes that judgment looks like broken families and sometimes that judgment looks like feeling displaced from where you belong and sometimes it looks like weeping over what your life has become but the reality is that those judgments brokenness feeling displaced weeping over what your life has become those judgments are just a foretaste of the judgment that is to come. Our sin has separated us from our sovereign, holy creator, God. 
And one day when we step from this world into the next, one day when we physically die, the Bible teaches that our sin will separate us forever from God's goodness, from his grace, from his love, and from his mercy. And instead, we will only know judgment. We will only know God's righteous wrath against our sin. That's the consequences of our rebellion. We, we think sin is such a small little thing. Oh, we just sinned. The Bible makes it really clear. It's serious. It's that serious. That's the consequences of our rebellion. That's the reality of being a fallen, sinful people under judgment. That's the problem at the heart of the gospel. But here's the thing. If that's our reality, if, if sin has ruined our lives to that degree, eternal consequences, if sin has ruined our lives to that degree, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Should we just all eat, drink, mar- be merry for tomorrow we die, you know? Just live it up here. That's what we got coming in the future. Or should we run out and try to find religion, you know, or clean up our act? Is the answer to our dilemma, you know, going to church, helping the old lady cross the street, making sure you drive the speed limit, you know, we're going to fill up our good works column enough to try to balance things out. Is that where our hope is found? No, no. Thankfully, our hope is much better and so much more effective than that. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about the answer to the problem of the gospel. We're going to talk about the hope that there is for those of us who have really known the reality of saying, our sin has ruined our lives. What hope do I have? We're going to talk about the hope for people who've gone to that place. And if you haven't got to that place, you need to go back to the Word of God. That's the reality of all of us. We're fallen sinful people under judgment. When I talk about the hope for people who understand that our sin has ruined our lives, what, what hope do we have? We're going to find our hope. We're going to discover our hope, and we're going to discover our hope in a song. But don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to sing you a song this morning. And so we're going to study this song together. And we're going to see how this song that we're going to look at, it, it points us to the hope for humanity. The hope for broken sinners weeping at their kitchen table. The hope for broken sinners weeping on the banks of the Euphrates. The hope for broken sinners weeping east of Eden. Broken sinners like every single one of us. So let me introduce this song to you. Take your Bibles now and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And as you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about the song we're going to look at this morning. Isaiah chapter 53. Now, this song that we're going to look at this morning, this poetic, prophetic word of the Lord through Isaiah, it would have been a familiar song to those folks on the banks of the Euphrates. And what I mean by that is it would have been a familiar song to those Hebrew people exiled in Babylon. But uh, though it would have been familiar to them, it wasn't a contemporary song. Instead, it was actually written a while before their time. Uh, Isaiah the prophet, he lived and he ministered some 150 years before the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the city. 
But still, even though he lived 150 years before that, God used Isaiah to write words of warning and words of encouragement to that future exile generation. Actually, much of the second half of Isaiah's massive prophetic book, it's such a large book, but much of the second half of this book deals with with words and encouragement and challenges for those exiles living in Babylon after the fall of Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing, though. Having said that, a lot of the second half of this book is addressing those folks in in Babylon. Um, What we're going to discover this morning is that the message doesn't just doesn't just address that. Uh, Some 2,700 years after the time of Isaiah the prophet, when we're living now, some 2,700 years after the time of Isaiah the prophet, this message that God communicated to him, and specifically the song we're going to look at this morning, for those of us today, 2,700 years later, it has powerful ramifications for us today. This song written so long ago is the song of our hope. It's the song of our hope. And in this song, this song that we find here in Isaiah 53, we read about the actions of a servant, the servant of the Lord. And this is actually here in chapter 53, this is the fourth time that Isaiah has mentioned this servant in this book. This is the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. He talked about the servant in chapter 42, talked about him in chapter 49, and he talked about him in chapter 50. But now, in fact, chapter 53, he comes to his climactic servant song, the fourth servant song. And here in this, this song, all of the, the previous themes that he's mentioned or he's hinted at in those earlier songs, all of those themes come to their fullest and ultimate expression. Here, Isaiah gives us a powerful picture of one who will come and will deliver. He will be the deliverer. He will be the deliverer of God's people. And beyond that, he will be the deliverer of the nation. So let's, let's dig into this song now. And actually, the song doesn't begin in chapter 53. It actually starts near the end of chapter 52. It actually begins back in verse 13 of chapter 52. And, and sometimes you have to wonder if whoever added the, the verse markers and the chapter markers in our Bible, and that's not part of the inspired text, those were added later. You have to wonder if they were always tracking with the text, because if they were, chapter 53 would begin a few verses earlier because the song actually starts there in chapter 52, verse 13. But let's look at it here. In the opening stanza of this song, we'll see today there's five stanzas in this song. But in the opening stanza of this song, we find what I want to call this morning hope through an astonishing triumph. Hope through an astonishing triumph. Look at what Isaiah writes, starting there in verse 13. Behold, my servant, so the servant of the Lord, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, astonished because his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. But as many were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle many, many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Here, this song opens with a promise, a promise of success. That's what that phrase, that opening phrase, my servant shall act wisely, that's what it means. Isaiah here is using a term, act wisely, that refers to, and I'll quote the dictionary definition here for you, refers to knowing exactly what to do in a given situation so as to bring about the intended results. That's what this Hebrew term means. 
knowing exactly what to do in a given situation so as to bring about the intended results. And that's what this servant of the Lord will do. He will act in such a way that he will accomplish the plan. He will succeed. But this successful servant is going to be different. He's going to be astonishingly different. And we see that in the way that Isaiah describes him here. Look at the second half of verse 13 there. Isaiah uses what I'll call divine language. Uh, and I mean divine descriptives there in describing the servant. Look what he says. He says, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, normally when the Bible uses that kind of language, and here's the thing, always when Isaiah uses that kind of language in his book, it's used to describe God himself. He is the one. God is the one who is high and lifted up and exalted. But here, it's being used to describe someone who in the very next line, Isaiah says is grotesque. He says, verse 14, that many will be astonished. That's the way the ESV translates it. Astonished at this servant. And Isaiah, this word that's translated by the ESV as astonished, it's a Hebrew term that can actually mean shocked, surprised. That's why the NIV, if you have an NIV, it translates it as appalled. Appalled. The New English translation brings the term across as horrified. You see, when people first look at this servant, they're not going to see someone amazing and beautiful. Instead, they're going to see one who, look at the text, whose appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. They will see one who is shocking and horrifying and astonishing, but in a, a negative way. But this servant, who many will view as astonishing in a negative way, is going to do something astonishingly positive. He's going to cleanse the nations. There in verse 15, that phrase, sprinkle many nations, he uses a term that you find in Leviticus. It was often associated with the Old Testament priesthood. This term that's translated sprinkle, it was a a word that was used of the priest sprinkling the blood on the altar to make atonement for the sins of the people. But here, that same term is to be taken and used of the servant and the nations. He's described as one who's going to bring cleansing, the removing of sin and guilt for the nations. It's going to cleanse the nations. And it's going to leave everyone dumbfounded. The kings, the great rulers of the world, are going to look at the text. They're going to shut their mouth. Shut their mouths because of it. He's going to do what no one ever thought was possible. What they'd never seen before or even heard rumors of. He's coming, this servant, on a mission of great deliverance and hope. And he's going to triumph. He's going to triumph. He's going to act wisely and have success. Even though he might look at times appalling, he's going to be high and lifted up. Cleansing the nations. That's how this song opens. But Isaiah goes on to tell us so much more. He shows us hope not just through this astonishing triumph, but he shows us hope through an unbelievable person. An unbelievable person. Look at the opening words now of chapter 53. Look at the opening words of chapter 53. Here Isaiah starts the second stanza of this song by telling us that this message about this servant, who in the world is going to believe this message? Who's going to believe this? He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? Or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This, this, what he's saying is, this is an unbelievable message. This is an unbelievable message. This hope and deliverance for the nations. 
And it's a message about the arm of the Lord. Now, here Isaiah is doing something in his book that he hasn't done for 52 chapters. He's already, he's already spoken in his book at length about the arm of the Lord. It's, it's, the arm of the Lord is a picture of God come in power to deliver his people. So here's, here's God and he's coming in power. So the arm of the Lord. And he's spoken at length about the arm of the Lord. God come in power to deliver his people. But here's the first time that he's associating the arm of the Lord with this servant. Now again, he's talked about this servant already three times. This is the fourth time. But here he's making this connection that this, this servant is actually the arm of the Lord. He is God come in power to deliver his people. But this one who is God come in power to deliver, uh, he doesn't look very divine. Look at verse 2. Isaiah says, he, this servant, grew up before him, before Yahweh, the true and living God, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. So in other words, he's going to grow up just like anybody else. And he's going to grow up in a difficult place, like a root out of dry ground. And the verse continues. Look at what it says. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This servant, this divine arm of the Lord, he isn't going to be very impressive, at least to look at. He's not going to look like a great conquering hero or like some majestic king or some noble prince. And so Isaiah's song predicts that people, his own people, Isaiah's people, will reject this servant. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And what does it say? We what? We esteemed him not. In other words, Isaiah is saying, this servant is going to come and we're not going to get it. We're not going to get it. We're not going to look at him and think, oh, he's, he's the one. God's working through him, obviously. He's not going to look like what we'd expect the arm of the Lord to look like. So Isaiah says, we're going to reject this unbelievable person. We're not going to esteem him as God's way of deliverance and help. Here's the thing. Even though the people will miss it, oh, here's the one bringing deliverance and help. Even though the people are going to miss it, Deliverance and hope is exactly what this servant, this unbelievable person, is going to bring. And he's going to bring it through some surprising means. Here we now come into the, the third stanza of this song, verses 4 to 6. And as we come into verses 4 to 6, we, we come into what is really the heart of this song. And here's the thing. The heart of this song is so surprising, so shocking in what it is saying, uh, that people argue it can't be teaching what it appears to be teaching can't be teaching what it appears to be teaching. But here's the thing. I'm glad those people are wrong (laughs) because the heart of this servant song is teaching exactly what it appears to be teaching. And it's teaching that this servant will suffer for others. He will suffer for others. He will suffer in the place of others. It's teaching hope through surprising suffering. Surely, verse 4 says, surely he has borne what? Our griefs carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. You see, here in, the, in this third stanza, in the heart of the song, Isaiah is describing surprising and at first confusing suffering. Again, he says, when we see it, we're not going to get it. We're going to esteem him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, we're going to look at him and say, he's getting what he deserves. But he's not the one who deserves it, is he? We are. We are. That's why Isaiah is saying, we are. That's what's truly happening here. Surely, Isaiah says, and we might be tempted to just read by that little word, surely. But what is really stressing is, Without a doubt, this is real and true. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's suffering, and he's suffering for us. He's suffering to deal with our sin, with the ramifications of our sin. And look here, look at the language that Isaiah uses. He uses all kinds of of graphic language, all kinds of sin language. He talks about grief and sorrow. He talks about transgressions and iniquities. Verse 6, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And what he's doing here is he's describing the very thing that we just looked at last Sunday. He's describing exactly what we saw in Genesis 3 in the garden. I mean, what do we see? We saw that sin is a breaking, a transgressing of God's law. We saw that sin is iniquity. It's that which brings guilt. It's that which brings judgment. And we talked at length last week that sin is cosmic rebellion. Cosmic rebellion. It is turning from the God of the universe to play the sovereign over our own life and go our own way. It's, it's the path of Adam and Eve, and it's the path of every single one of us. Since Genesis chapter 3, we've all been guilty of transgressions and iniquity. And as Isaiah says here, like foolish sheep, like dumb sheep. We've gone our own way. We've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We're all over the place. We're lost. Rebels. But here, again, the language here is shocking. In such shocking detail, Isaiah says that God's going to lay all of that. All of that guilt. All of that sorrow all that judgment, all that iniquity. He's going to take what's due us and he's going to lay it upon this servant. This servant is the one who's going to be pierced. He's the one who's going to be crushed. He's the one who's going to be wounded and upon whom the chastisement, the punishment due sin, will fall. He's going to take all of that which Isaiah says we deserve. He's going to suffer vicariously, that is, in our place. He's going to suffer for our guilt so that we don't have to. So that we don't have to. He's going to be the substitutionary, substitutionary, vicarious, atoning sacrifice for sin. And Isaiah goes on to describe what, what being that sacrifice would be like. Uh, look at verses 7 to 9 here, the fourth stanza of the song. Here Isaiah describes hope through a shocking death. It's a servant's shocking death. And look at what he writes here. He, he begins by telling us that this death, that, the servant's death, it will be a willing death. A willing death. In verse 7 we read, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet what? What does it say? Yeah, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, 
So he opened on his mouth. So as he goes through the death, he's going to go willingly. He's not going to fight back. He's not going to try to defend himself. He's not going to offer up a list of other people who really should be suffering this. It's not my fault. It's theirs. They should be suffering. No, not at all. He's going to go willingly. And the death that he's going to go to willingly, it's not going to be an easy one. It says it's going to be an oppressive death. Verse 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. By oppression and judgment. And several commentators suggest that this line here, by oppression and judgment, has to do with injustice. It has to do with being victimized by a judicial procedure. And that's why the New English translation brings this line across as, he was led away after an unjust trial. And the New Living Translation renders it, unjustly condemned, he was led away. Isaiah here in this line, he's describing this servant's death as a victimization. But it's a victimization, mark this, that he went through willingly. Often when we are victimized, it's against our will. But he goes through it willingly. And the great irony that Isaiah points out here is that no one's going to seem to care, even though his death was for them. Verse 8 continues, look at it. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, or the term literally means violently removed. Who considered that he was violently removed out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. In other words, his generation, those who see him suffering this unjust, oppressive death, they won't even care. They won't even take the time to consider What's going on? Even though he was stricken for their transgressions. And Isaiah adds to this willing, oppressive, unjust, ironic death. He adds to the scene by describing a surprising burial. Isaiah predicts that they will, verse 9, make his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, Isaiah shows us this one, the suffering servant, being identified with the wicked. Earlier, you know, in our place. Now here, buried with the wicked. Even though he's done, what? Nothing to deserve it, right? He's an innocent man. No violence, no deceit. But he's going to be placed with those who are violent and deceitful. What's interesting here, and it might be confusing at first, is that Isaiah here includes the rich. Uh, with a rich man in his death. And at first glance, that seems a little bit out of place in the midst of all of this ugliness that's going on here. You might think, well, burial with the rich, that's probably a positive thing. Uh, Not in the Old Testament prophets. Not in the Old Testament prophets. You see, often in the writings of the prophets, they condemn the rich. They condemn the rich. The rich are those who who often oppress the poor. They're those who do violence. They're those who gain through deceit. So what you need to understand is this, this last section of the fourth stanza, both those terms, wicked and rich, go together. They go hand in hand. So here's the thing, this one who dies this ironic death, dying for people who don't even seem to care that he's dying for them, is going to be buried the same way, with irony. Buried with the wealthy and the wicked oppressors who most likely caused his death. So again, this, this fourth stanza is showing us this shocking death of this suffering servant. Dead and buried. But the song doesn't end there. The song doesn't end there. However, before we look at how it ends, I've been kind of just working through this text. Before we look at how it ends, I want us to pause for a moment. 
I want to ask a, a very important question. Um, as Isaiah writes this servant song, this fourth servant song, he asks the question, who is Isaiah talking about? Who, who is this servant? Now, now, some have suggested that the servant is the nation of Israel itself. And if you go and you talk to a modern Orthodox Jewish rabbi, that's probably the answer he's going to give you. Oh, yeah. Isaiah 53, that's talking about the nation. However, the big problem with that understanding of the song is that it misses the major point of the song. The major point being that the servant is suffering in the place of the people. The servant, this singular individual throughout this entire song, all the pronouns are singular. He's suffering for Israel. For those who Isaiah identifies as with the pronouns, we are us in our place, Isaiah is saying. So if the servant is the people, guess what? This song doesn't make a lick of sense. It doesn't make any sense. But that interpretation of the song doesn't make any sense. Um, And that has led others to wonder if Isaiah here is describing a person, either one of his contemporaries, like some ancient king or world leader, or even Isaiah himself. However, here's the thing with that. No one has been found from Isaiah's day or from the time of the Babylonian exile that matches the words of Isaiah's song. Not even Isaiah himself, who, who was a man associated with a lot of suffering. So who is this servant? Well, let's answer that question by listening just for a moment to the story of someone else who asked that same question. Over in the New Testament, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen, but over in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 to 35, We read this. Just listen. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 35. You can jot that reference down and look at it later, but just listen now. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Philip, who is a Christian in the early church, he said to Philip, rise and go to the south, to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. text adds that detail in. And so he, Philip, rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. So he's a treasurer, impressive guy. And the text tells us he had come, this Ethiopian, to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was, listen to this, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Reading Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Go talk to this Ethiopian. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked him, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? I don't know what's going on here. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, listen to this. The passage of the scripture that he was reading, that's what the text says. The passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And that was the the Greek translation of the Hebrew of Isaiah 53. Now David had the Septuagint Greek translation of the Hebrew. And so here's this Ethiopian, and he's reading Isaiah 53. And the eunuch said to Philip, this is from Acts. The eunuch said to Philip, listen. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Sounds like our question, doesn't it? Then Philip opened his mouth 
And beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. Beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told the Ethiopian the gospel message about Jesus. You see, Jesus is the suffering servant. This scripture that we've been working through this morning, it's all about Jesus. And that point, it wasn't just made by Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. That, that point is made repeatedly throughout the New Testament. This passage is quoted to and alluded to by the Apostle Paul, by the Apostle Peter, by the Apostle John, by John the Baptist, and even by Jesus himself. Repeatedly, over and over and over again, the New Testament uses Isaiah 53 to point us to Jesus Christ. The suffering servant is Jesus Christ. So this song that we're working through this morning, this song shows us that Jesus Christ is the hope for sinners like us. Think about this. Some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah gave this song to show Israel and all the nations that God would act to save fallen and sinful people from judgment through the life, death, and yet, but we're getting there. Resurrection of Jesus Christ. 700 years before he was born, God gave this song to show that he was going to act in history to save sinful people from judgment through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that point, that this is what God has done, is made abundantly clear in the final stanza of this song. So now let's look at the end of this song, the last stanza. And here what we see is hope through the divine plan. Hope through the divine plan. And, and already what we've seen here is this song open with a prediction of triumph. Isaiah predicted that Jesus would be exalted and lifted up. He would be the one who cleansed the nations, but he would endure a, a shocking suffering, astonishing suffering to accomplish it. And Isaiah has told us that, that he's going to be like no one else. Jesus is going to be like no one else. He's going to be the divine arm of the Lord. God come in power, at the same time, merely human. It wouldn't look like anyone expected, no form, no majesty. He's told us that he, Jesus would be rejected. He was going to suffer. He was going to go willingly to his death, a death at the hands of unjust men, a death his, his generation would see un, unsympathetic to, a death with the wicked, and then he would be buried in the tomb of the rich. All that, everything that Isaiah has said thus far, it's all true of Jesus. 700 years before he was born. But all of this happened to Jesus. Isaiah goes on to tell us, because it was the plan of God. Look at verse 10. The final stanza opens verse 10 by saying, yet it was what? It's just happenstance, just chance, just an accident, just victimization. No, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of our sovereign, holy creator, God. For God the Son to take upon himself our humanity, and to suffer all of these things for us. To deliver his people and to cleanse the nations. Who are the nations? Gentiles, right? Who are the Gentiles? You and me. To cleanse the nations. To cleanse the Gentiles. You and me. And verse 10 tells us that Jesus was an offering for our guilt. But that offering wasn't the end. Yes, it was the end of our guilt. But praise God, it was not the end of Jesus. Look at what Isaiah says. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall what? Prolong his days. 
shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see, death is not the end for this servant. After making an offering for guilt, after enduring the wrath of God, do us for our sins, after enduring that on the cross and dying between two thieves and being buried in the tomb of the rich, on the third day, what happened? What happened? He rose from the dead. The Lord prolonged his days. Sacrifice was accepted. Resurrection. Jesus became the firstborn from among the dead. As we start our study of Colossians, Jesus became the pioneer of the resurrection. Pioneer of the resurrection. And he's the one who will one day see the resurrection of all of his offspring. All of his offspring. He shall see his offspring. All of his offspring. All of those who embrace him by faith. He's going to see their resurrection. And verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. I love that. Out of that suffering... It's not going to be the end of him. He's going to see and be satisfied. Or I think as the author of Hebrews puts it, for the joy set before him, he, what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, what Isaiah's song is promising here is that the mission will be accomplished. Jesus Christ, praise God, will be satisfied. He was satisfied. And he was satisfied because through his life, death, and resurrection, he transformed our lives. All of those who are united to this servant by faith will be radically transformed. Again, look at verse 11. I love this. This is the glorious result of what Jesus has accomplished. Look at text. Isaiah says, by his knowledge, and don't let that little line confuse you, because what that's talking about there, by his knowledge, is talking about his experiential knowledge of bearing our guilt and our shame. Because knowledge here in the text, it's, it's paralleling the anguish of the soul, and so that helps us interpret that. So just like anguish of the soul, that's the knowledge that's being talked about here. This experiential knowledge of death really actually suffering for us. But by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, what does it say? Make many to be accounted what? He'll give them a good start. Now what does it say? Make many to be accounted righteous. What is that talking about? It's talking about justification. It's talking about justification. It's talking about being declared righteous, being able to stand and be accepted in the presence of holy God. By his knowledge shall my right, tell the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Why? Because he shall bear their, what? Iniquities. See, the death of Jesus is the grounds, it's the means, the, the only means for our justification. Our justification. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned, we know this part, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The text continues to say, and are justified, are declared righteous by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And what that's talking about is everything that we've seen in Isaiah 53. This this sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God upon our sins. Put forward, God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we who are sinners, we who deserve God's judgment, we are saved, we are justified, we are declared righteous before holy God through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of this suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who is Jesus Christ. And all who are justified will be gloriously blessed. Verse 12, look at verse 12. Therefore God says, I will divide with him with his servant a portion. And that's talking about an inheritance. 
He's going to divide a portion with him with who? With the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And, and that's speaking of every single Christian, every one of us. Though we are weak, <laughs> this servant is going to make us strong. And he will bless us. God will bless us with the, the glorious riches of Christ's inheritance. All that belongs to Christ. Guess what? It comes to us. Isn't that amazing? Everything that he earned, we get. And all that we earned was placed upon him. All the bad stuff he bore. And all the good stuff he gave. Why? Because we deserve it? Because we're such nice folks? No. Because as the final line, the, the song's final line say, look at it. Here's why. God's going to give us all this inheritance in Christ. All that's Christ has come to us because he poured out, because the servant poured out his soul to death. I was numbered with the transgressors, but he wasn't a transgressor. Here's what he was doing. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, here's the thing. Our lives are radically transformed, justified, blessed, given a future, given an inheritance, because Jesus Christ actually removed the guilt of our sin, and he lives to make intercession for us. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we have hope. That's why we have hope. We have hope because all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. You see, Isaiah's song says to the hopeless, weeping on the banks of the Euphrates, and to the devastated east of Eden, and to the broken sitting at their kitchen table, fear not. Sin has not ruined your life. There is hope. There is hope. And hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As explained in that opening message, the gospel is the good news that our sovereign, holy creator, God, acted in history to save. Not just to make possible, but to save, to actually save fallen and sinful people from judgment through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what this song, Isaiah's song, is all about. And so, that discouraged young man on the banks of the Euphrates can cling to the truth that this exile is not the end. That a new exodus is coming. And that Messiah's salvation will be far more glorious than he ever imagined. And Eve, weeping east of Eden, can know that her seed will come. And he will crush the head of the serpent. And one day, everything that sin ruined will be redeemed. The world will again be as it should be. And for that broken father, sitting at his kitchen table, and for anyone here this morning who feels overwhelmed and discouraged and just defeated, despairing because of sin. Isaiah's song says you can't know the joy of forgiveness. You can know what it is to be clean. Shown mercy, given grace, have real abiding hope. You can know, I mean really know, not just know about, but really experience what it is to be free from the burden of sin. Now, praise God, forever. Because a suffering servant, Jesus the Messiah, took upon himself, took upon himself the problem at the heart of the gospel, our problem, our sin, 
our judgment. And he became the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus Christ is our hope. He's our hope. I want to close our service this morning by celebrating that glorious truth. We're going to gather together. I think it's so fitting that we're doing that this morning. Gather together around the Lord's table. And my prayer for us as we gather together around the Lord's table is that we would feed our hearts on the truths of the gospel. Um, we were praying together this morning before the service. And it's so easy to get caught up in just the temporal things of life. And there are burdens that we walk through in this life. But the gospel is dealing with eternal realities. And one day, all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, they're going to stand in the throne room of God. And we are going to marvel at what this servant accomplished for us. So I'm praying as we gather around the table that it's not just, oh, this is part of our service that we go through. But that we really feed our hearts in the truth of what it is. To be fallen Simple people under judgment who are saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, that we really feed our hearts on the truths of being forgiven people. I ask the men to come forward for this time of communion. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you for Ways you're so gracious and kind. I thank you that actually from the very beginning of the story you've been telling us what you're going to do. Even in the judgments in Genesis 3, there was the promise. You would come, you would crush the head of the serpent. And then here, just one of the many places here in Isaiah 53, 700 years before you were born, before you stepped into this world and took upon yourself our humanity. You told us this is what you're going to do. And we praise you that, that you came, you acted wisely. From the anguish of your soul, you saw and were satisfied that you accomplished the mission you walked in obedience every step of the way. And you actually did bear our sin upon that cross. Everything that should have been poured out on us, all the transgression, all the iniquity, the judgment for our rebellion actually fell upon you. You were pierced. You were crushed. You took it all. It's not fiction. It's not some story we've, we've made up to make ourselves feel better. It's what you actually accomplished for us. Again, one day in eternity, we're going to be with you and we're going to marvel at what you have done. Help us by your spirit. Help us to marvel today. Help us to see the glorious hope that is ours through you. As we gather together around this table, by your spirit, feed our hearts in that truth. I pray for those who are here this morning and they are feeling discouraged. I feel like I just keep messing everything up. 
feel like they've ruined things. Through the bread and the cup, preach the gospel to their hearts. Help them to see the grace, the joy, the blessing of being forgiven, truly forgiven, cleansed. And for those of us who may be here today and are taking sin lightly, help us to pause and realize what it actually took to secure our forgiveness. That you, the eternal Son of God, glorious beyond what we can fathom, took upon yourself our humanity, the condescension we cannot even even begin to get our mind around the creator being like the creature. But you didn't stop there. You went all the way to death. That's what it cost. As we gather together around the table, preach to our hearts. This is the reality of sin. This is the reality of sin. And we hate it and love you. Preach to our hearts, encourage our hearts through the bread and through the cup. These things we pray in your name. Amen.